This is a Federal News Network podcast. The Office of Management and Budget is pulling its approval for selling the Federal Archives and Records Center in Seattle, citing a lack of communication with the communities that rely on those records. It's one of a dozen high-value but underutilized federal properties identified by the Public Buildings Reform Board just a year ago. The rest of the board's recommendations haven't made much traction either. We get the latest from Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. Jory, why did they pull approval to sell this center? It seems like the government can never get around to actually disposing of these old properties. Well, it's a longstanding challenge, but for this specific property, we heard from the acting OMB director, Shalanda Young, and last week she had issued a letter saying that the administration was going to pull its approval to sell the Federal Archives and Records Center in Seattle because it went against the administration's policy to consult with tribal leaders before making these kinds of decisions. And she cited a January 26th memo signed by President Joe Biden specifically backing up that claim. And had the Public Buildings Reform Board heard anything like this, it did go public a long time ago with that recommendation. Yeah, it issued all of its 12 recommendations to fast track the sale and disposal of about a year ago. But this property has been the outlier by far, just in terms of the feedback on it and the amount of attention that's been paid to it. Uh, Case in point, there was a federal lawsuit filed to block the sale of this property specifically because of what this property holds. And that's permanent agency records dating back decades and really since the the founding of this country, really records from the Bureau of Indian Affairs that includes tribal and treaty records, as well as original records related to the internment of Japanese Americans in World War II. And so what really was an issue here is just that the local community says that NARA, as well as GSA and OMB, were not being totally transparent with plans to fast track the disposal and sale of this property and that even in this lawsuit, which was led by Washington State, the tribal authorities that were also parties as the plaintiffs said that they learned about the sale through news sources and that they didn't even get a formal communication from any of the federal government that this was going to be up for disposal in the first place. And as far as the records that were there, NARA said that they were going to move those to facilities in Southern California or Missouri, but to tribal leaders to move those records hundreds of miles away uh, would make them, as they put it, inaccessible. Got it. And so what about the rest of the board's recommendations? So that remains a bit of an open question. Officials from GSA, OMB, and the Public Buildings Reform Board did not get back to me as far as where things stand for the rest of the properties. But, you know, with the the way the past year has gone, this was already kind of an issue to begin with, with COVID-19. And of course, with commercial real estate kind of in flux right now, as far as what that is really worth these days, the board was actually planning to adjust its plans a little bit. There were originally plans for all these sales to be done individually, but what was recently updated on the board's website is that they were going to sell all 12 of these properties as a single portfolio. And so we have a couple of unanswered questions there now that this one property of the 12 is no longer on the table. Unclear what it's going to mean for the other 11. Sure. We're speaking with Federal News Network's Jory Heckman, and you've done a little digging into how disposal of federal buildings has gone in the past. What did you find? Well, to put it one way, it's just not gone easy in the past. There have been some case studies of this going well, but 
You know, really, I asked a, a number of formers in this space. Uh, I spoke with the former Public Building Service Commissioner, Dan Matthews, the most recent one to have the full-time job. And he said, certainly, the goal of the board is admirable, and it does address a lot of issues. He said, just broadly, the, the board is taking the right kinds of steps here, and that the goal of the board is on target. Overall, I think there's no doubt about it. The federal government has more real estate than it needs to perform its mission. So it has a larger cost structure than it needs to maintain. And so the reason for a public buildings reform board is because it's difficult for the federal government to divest itself of property for a variety of statutory and policy-based reasons. And that's Dan Matthews, the former Public Building Service Commissioner. We had heard from some other folks as well. This has been an issue for at least a number of decades now as part of a larger multi-administration effort to ultimately shrink the federal real property footprint here. And to give you a sense of how far this goes back, under the George W. Bush administration, there was a real focus here and that the OMB under that administration had a list of high value properties. Sounds awfully familiar to what we're talking about present day. And we heard from former OMB controller Danny Werfel, who was in charge of that list. And he said that back then and even now, it's just never been an easy process to dispose of these properties, even when you have it down to a short list. I think there's some benefit to FASTA naming this list and going through the process and seeing how things get tied up. And then coming back and saying, look, we tried this. We learned about some of the inefficiencies in the way the process unfolds. So in addition to not only naming these properties and, and highlighting them, we got to clean up some of these inefficiencies as well. And that's former OMB controller Danny Werfel. And lastly, you know, not to be so gloomy on this topic, there are some success stories. A couple of years ago under the Obama administration, there was a deal struck with MIT to redevelop the Transportation Department's Volpe National Transportation System Center in Cambridge, Massachusetts. That was a big success. And even when the board, the Public Buildings Reform Board was getting off the ground, that was excited as a success story of people making some some headway here. And so in looking at that success story, I spoke with another former PBS commissioner, Norman Dong, and he said, there's some lessons learned from that Volpe sale that apply to the present day here. And I think one of the reasons why Volpe was so successful was because of how the federal project team working with this was able to kind of engage with local stakeholders and officials every step of the way to make sure that you know, we were in sync with local economic development objectives and supporting local economic development activity. And that's former PBS Commissioner Norman Dong, again, hitting on that local community feedback communication line there. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. Check out Jory's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. We now bring you a special presentation from our friends at WEPA. Shane, thanks for joining us. Can you tell us about WEPA and your new podcast? Mike, great to see you again. The podcast series, Lessons in Leadership, what we're trying to do is, is take a deeper dive, a different angle into the conversation around leadership with great leaders at all levels of government. Uh, since the 1900s, leadership has been studied in a serious and academic way. Uh, great man theory, the leader-follower theory, the inspirational leader, transformational leader, all of these are backward-looking um, development of styles, looking at an individual, figuring out how they did leadership, and then translating it into a form that we can use today to learn, to perhaps emulate, copy. 
But great leaders, they have more than one style. I think, I truly think that a great leader can adapt and transform into the role that's needed at that time. So what we're trying to do is, is talk to great leaders and go a level deeper. Tell us about your, a story in your past. Tell us an inspiration that really affected your ability to lead others. And this certainly applies in the uh, federal space. The federal government, it's over 2 million employees. Great leaders are throughout the federal government, both at the top and the middle ranks. And what we want to do is ask them to pull inside their memory, pull inside their personal history, find those moments in time when they were changed, they were inspired, they learned something about leadership from another person, perhaps it was uh, from themselves, and they brought that to the workplace, and they inspired others and became great leaders. So that's what we're trying to do with the podcast. Okay, so I, I get that you wanted to start with leadership, but what makes leadership such an important topic right now for federal workers? Great question. Leadership today is tested like never before. Um, today's, if I had to put a leadership style, if I had to put names to it, we hear about um, empathetic, we hear transparent, we hear uh, inspirational. So today we have COVID, we have a down economy, we have people, we have social uh, injustice that we're dealing with. There are many new factors. And it's drawing like never before on a leader's ability to pull from within themselves and adapt to the current change. So leadership today is almost brand new again. We're taking all kinds of different styles, attributes, learnings that leaders have. They're looking at the current situation that we're in and understanding how do I move groups of people? How do I move my employees? How do I inspire? How do I get them to the next best place? So I think leadership today, this conversation uh, is extremely relevant, perhaps more relevant than it's been in several decades. You know, we talk about an employee's personal route to growth, but what role does the management side have in this? I think in the federal government, it's, it's a little bit different than it is in the private sector. Uh, my father was a civilian federal employee. Uh, he joined the federal government in the 1960s. Uh, John Kennedy, he was inspired by ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. He had opportunities to go in the private sector. That notion of service inspired him. It inspired an entire generation. I would like to think that call to service which is unique in, in the federal space, in the government space, still exists today. Well, that about says it all. But is anything else you'd want the audience to know about you personally or WEPA as an, as an organization? Uh, I have been uh, around the group affinity insurance world for um, three decades. I've uh, led this is my second uh, major organization that I've led and I will tell you that we impart this feeling, uh, you mentioned it, Mike, about service, this notion. We serve those who serve. 
And uh, I will tell you that it's refreshing. It's a blessing to be there. And I have so much respect for civilian federal employees at every level of government. In this podcast, we're hoping to talk to leaders which are similarly inspired and can share their learnings over a lifetime. And uh, this will be useful information uh, for anybody in government service. When you think about something that brings out the best in us, it usually involves helping someone else. By donating plasma at a Griffel Center, you can help save millions of lives and show your good side to the world. You'll join thousands of people who donate safely each week, so patients get the plasma-derived medicines they rely on. And you'll be rewarded up to $1,000 your first month. Learn more at grifflesplasma.com. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.